0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, the producer of this podcast. This week, we are revisiting an episode from the At Liberty Archive, featuring the newly announced MacArthur Fellow, Dr. Sophia Noble. Our former host, Molly Kaplan, interviewed Dr. Noble in February about her work at the intersection of internet algorithms and racial justice. We'll be back next week with a new guest host and a new episode for you. But until then, we hope you enjoy this conversation. Imagine you've forgotten, once again, the difference between a gorilla and a chimpanzee. So you do a quick Google image search of gorilla. But instead of finding images of adorable, banana-obsessed animals, photos of a Black couple show up. Is this just a glitch in the algorithm? Or... Is Google an ad company, not an information company that's replicating the discrimination of the world that it operates in? How can this discrimination be addressed and who is accountable for it? Our guest today, UCLA professor and bestselling author of Algorithms of Oppression, Dr. Sophia Noble, answers some of these questions. Dr. Noble, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, Molly, for having me, excited to be here.
0: In your book, Algorithms of Oppression, you talk about a really pivotal moment that led you to this work, and as I understand, you were trying to find ways to keep your preteen stepdaughter and her cousins entertained, and you did a quick Google search. Can you
1: share that story and the impact that it had on you? Sure. I'll tell you this story is just so amazing to me because I think one of the things that is like all problems that we identify, they kind of start close to home or with something that seems kind of banal. So in this case, this was, oh gosh, a little more than a decade ago, I'd say now. Around 2009, 10, I was in graduate school at the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. And I was thinking about all of the kinds of many things I wanted to study and write about on the internet and how the internet was playing this huge role in our lives. And I did a search on the keywords black girls. And of course, I have done this various times, but it was particularly acute when I was thinking about it in the context of my daughter and her cousins, you know, my nieces and being confronted with just 80% of the first page of search results being pornography for years The first hit was hotblackpussy.com or sugaryblackpussy.com. And, you know, thinking like, what does it mean when teenage girls or young children look for themselves on the internet? And this really was kind of the thread that I started pulling on that ultimately led to a much larger study about the consequences of things like search engines in our societies. But more importantly, It also kind of underscored the tyranny of the majority, right? What does it mean when you're part of an ethnic group that's minoritized and you're a child within that group who has lost 100% of control over the way in which you're represented to the world? And I think these issues that stemmed from caring about my daughter and my bonus daughter, I call her, and my nieces really was kind of like the opening for what's turned into a life's worth of work about the role of these technology companies in our lives and in our society.
0: And what did you end up learning as you dug a little bit deeper from this singular Google search into Google search writ large, but also algorithms and how those work in the sphere?
1: Yeah, well, this is the more interesting part to me of this story is that When you did keyword searches on all kinds of things, not just Black girls, but of course that was near and dear to me because I'm a Black woman and I was a Black girl at one time, but, you know, Latina girls, Asian girls. And of course, when you contrast that with other identities that let's say aren't typically marginalized in our society, you see such a differential. So of course, anytime you search for boys and men, You're not going to be confronted with pornography or this kind of sexual objectification. So that maps pretty clearly onto the way our society is organized. And you start to see varying levels of harm that are different that I do think map onto these challenges that we've had that far predate the internet. So I was interested in how that was happening. And I was trying to, at the time, this is like 2009, 2010, I was trying to tell people, listen, it's coded in a way that's discriminatory. These platforms are encoded with racism. The logic is racist and sexist because it would allow for these kinds of false, misleading, misinformative kinds of results to come to the fore. Now you have to remember 10 years ago, when I would say something like that, world experts, professors, PhDs would say, Safiya, that's just impossible because computer code can't discriminate, computer code is just math. And math can't be racist, can't be sexist. That was the prevailing logic. So you know how far we've come in 10 years, because now you can be anywhere and people are pretty astute about the discriminatory effects of computer code and software. And there are unfortunately thousands of examples now of harm that comes from algorithmic discrimination right? I think of it as algorithmic oppression. But I can tell you that not so long ago, this was a very, very difficult concept to apprehend. And the way we've come to know about it, quite frankly, is because of the many women, people of color, LGBTQ scholars and journalists who have been documenting this and really pushing this into a mainstream issue. And so, you know, I've been part of that community of people over the last 10 years.
0: I'm curious, Google search in particular has really succeeded in centering itself in our everyday habits. It is hard to imagine a day without looking something up on the map or searching on Google search. And I'm curious, it's almost become like this point of reflex dependence where even though, as you mentioned, I think there is a lot more awareness about algorithmic discrimination in the macro sense, I still feel like we tell ourselves little bitty lies to make it okay to use these tools. And you touched on one, but what did you say to people who said, The algorithm is objective. It's free of all the biases that humans have. It's like the internet itself. It's democratic, open to all. It solves for everything. And not only that, but it's also just the majority of people getting what they asked for. What is your response to that sort of reflex?
1: Yeah, that really is the prevailing logic in the public. I will tell you that we are also shifting how the public comes to see these things. So that is very important, and I feel... Like we still have a lot more work to do, but you are right. I mean, there's a couple things in there. So first, the companies themselves, Google, but not just Google, other companies too, are really invested in this idea that they are simply kind of the world's best technology, that they are not culpable or responsible when these kinds of, let's say disparate impact of the technology where there's harm that comes from their failures, they will argue that they're simply a reflection of society. They're just the mirror. If pornography is the main thing you get when you search for Latina girls or Asian girls in 2021, and mind you, this is without having to add the word sex or porn, they're just synonymous, right? This is part of the real problem. They'll tell you, well, that's just because that's what everybody's looking for. Of course, now we have to say, well, is that what Latina girls themselves are looking for? Is that what Asian girls themselves are, is that what children are looking for about themselves? I think not. So of course we have to ask ourselves, what is this about this kind of tyranny of the majority, if that is indeed the logic at play. Now I spent a lot of time trying to unpack how search engines work with what is available and can be known because of course, all these technologies are proprietary. You can't see how the code works. You can only go from what Google says about how its product works and then looking kind of reverse engineering back and seeing all of the different ways that search results come into existence and what they're saying, what they're but actually But we do recording. know that
0: it's an ad company
1: and it makes a ton of money off, for example, the porn industry. That's right. And that was one of the things that I spent so much time when I was writing the dissertation that eventually came the book was showing that Google search is not an information or knowledge portal. It is an advertising company. Those that pay the most to optimize content are the most likely to be made visible. Now, this is really, really important. We know, for example, that Google always biases and defaults to its own interests. Now, how you see this is when you go to look for a video, you're always going to find YouTube at the top of the search pile. Google kind of colloquially, as we think of it, owns YouTube. And so you have to ask yourself, if Google's always prioritizing what's in its own business interest, its own products and services, right, because it's vertical and horizontal products, then you have to look at the engine that's driving search. Now, for a long time, people would say that there was this firewall between the ads that were served up, kind of in the margin on the Google search, and what they call the organic—I'm putting organic in quoting fingers—the organic web results. But of course, if you understand how AdWords works and how Google's, let's say, keyword planning tool works, where people can again pay in a live auction, twenty-four by seven—that's I mean, always running.
0: Also, does this for its own ends. Everybody does
1: it. Who has? Everybody's doing this. Yeah. Right trying to get their own content to the front. And those who have the most technical skill and the most capital, the most money, are the most likely to show up on the first page. Now, this is incredibly important because that means there is not an organic, vetted, curated you know logic where we're just trying to get the thing that's the most reliable to the front page. No, the ad company is trying to get its clients, the people that pay it, to get their content visible. And this is very important that we make this distinction that Google search is an advertising company. It is not an information retrieval or knowledge company. But the minute you start looking for something that's socially nuanced, which is quite frankly how a lot of people use search engines, well, now you're starting to fall apart. And this is why we have to look.
0: One example that you used in your book was professional hairstyles. That does not seem like something that should be at all... Gender based, race based. And yet, can you tell us what popped up when for that example that you used yeah. in your book?
1: I appreciate that you remember that because I put so, so, so many examples in the book to try to help people understand it's not like a one off kind of experience, right? So, for many years, if you did a search on professional hairstyles for work, you would get almost exclusively in Google Images white women. With ponytails and updues. And if you Googled unprofessional hairstyles for work, it was almost exclusively black women with natural hair. So your listeners today can't see my hair, but I did wear my unprofessional hairstyle for you because I, I really always feel like wear, taking my hair down I'm I'm as like, solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna do Listen, it. I always tell whenever I'm giving a talk about this and I'm talking to white women, I say, you know, now it's the ponytail and the <laughs> updo that makes you professional. And I guess also being white. So it's like this idea. And of course, think about how many teachers and parents are constantly telling students to Google it. Oh, just Google this, Google that, Google this career, Google that career. You know, for years, if you look for professors, you'd never see black women or anyone who looked like me. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, what is it about the subtle normalization? of racist and sexist ideas that also come through when students think they're going to a fact checker or a truth telling machine vis-a-vis a search engine.
0: You touched on something that I want to keep going into, which is that as these companies get bigger, as Google search starts to take over, we are losing investment in education, in the resources, in libraries that could kind of counteract and are meant to be information hubs and slightly, maybe still problematic, but slightly less of an ulterior motive of just trying to make money. And that seems like it's part of the problem here, is that it's not just these companies are taking over in a sort of marketplace. They are the only option in some circumstances.
1: Well, this is absolutely correct. And this has really been, even since the book has come out, I mean, I talk about this, like what's at stake in terms of our knowledge and information futures. And part of this, of course, I'm motivated because I come out of the field of library and information science. I went to the iSchool, the information school at Illinois, and I have a PhD in library and information science. And of course, I think about what it means to make knowledge available for thousands of years, right? What will people know thousands of years or even 50 years from now? So, of course, we frame these issues differently than, let's say, a computer science department who might be looking at these concerns. And I will tell you that if you think about what the tech sector has done, but Google in particular, now, you know, they've had some different kinds of projects. I mean, there was the, as I was entering grad school, there was this huge Google book digitization project underway. There was an amazing book written by Siva, by Jonathan, called The Googleization of Everything and Why We Should Worry. That significantly influenced me. I was thinking about how we were just turning over these vast stores of human knowledge to private advertising company and the kind of race to digitization. So libraries were starting to stop buying books, starting to only buy digital copies. Of course, many of us were thinking, well, what happens when your power grid goes out or you live in some part of the world where your device becomes obsolete and you can't access these digital copies anymore? Who's deciding what gets digitized? Is it all going to be like English speaking, European? Of yes. I mean, this was actually the major issue around that project early on was that The French in particular, France was like, hold on, you are digitizing all of our French national cultural heritage, this American company, we don't know what you're doing with that, and these are our national treasures. So there became all these kinds of issues, and of course, Google's position was, it was digitizing all the world's knowledge, and of course, what we mean is all the world's English-speaking knowledge, and there's a trust, a whole lot of knowledge that's not in English. So all these things are, of course, are really important. And simultaneously, just to answer your question, Molly, what's happening is we are living in a moment where we are defunding public education, defunding higher education, defunding libraries, every kind of democratic institutional counterweight that is a public good is being subverted by the very industry that is not only squeezing out those institutions, but it is also not paying taxes, offshoring their profits, right? I mean, how can we have a tech sector, the biggest sector on the planet, that doesn't pay taxes, in some cases gets tax refunds? And those taxes are very important to bolstering democratic institutions, like We're talking about that are the counterweights that we need so desperately. One of the things that I think is interesting for those of us who've been on the internet for a really long time, all right. I got my first email address, I think, in 1989. So, you know, that I'm not a spring chicken. And I will tell you that the whole idea of web 1.0 was it was kind of disorganized and it was a little messy. And, but there were trade offs. For example, the first version search engines were kind of directories. We called them virtual libraries, in fact, and librarians and other subject matter experts really organized things. Now, what that did is it had a high degree of transparency. We knew who was giving us what, where it was coming from. There was context, there was specificity. There was like, here's a link to this. You can maybe get in here and, you know, and I don't know if this one is reliable and those kinds of things. All right, now fast forward, we go into a Web 2.0 World of search, where now we have the clean white page, nothing to see here, folks. Just trust us. There is this kind of discourse of algorithms and finding things on the internet being more magical. Right. One thing that I think is
0: really important to talk about and that you covered in the book is that algorithmic discrimination and oppression, the harm is not theoretical, the harm is real. And one example you gave is of Dylan Roof, who murdered churchgoers in South Carolina, and this—I had not realized how the sort of evolution of his thinking that brought him to that day. Can you explain that story and how it relates to algorithms?
1: Sure. So Dylan Roof was a white nationalist who, at the time that he had murdered these nine African Americans worshiping at Mother A.M.E. Emanuel Church. It was, you know, at the time, one of the worst, most heinous racist hate crimes of modern times. And within 24 hours, everyone who's online is trying to research this person, this man, to see what has he done and why has he done it. And, you know, within 24 hours, someone on Twitter uncovers his manifesto, which is thelastrodesian.com. So in his own words, in his blog, which was authenticated by the FBI, he talks about how he was trying to make sense of the news reporting of Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. Trayvon Martin has been murdered by George Zimmerman. So he, in his own words, he says he does a search, a Google search on the phrase black on white crime. Now, one of the things we know is that Black-on-white crime is like a racist red herring. This isn't a real thing. This is not a phenomenon. This is what white supremacists use as a way to kind of galvanize disinformation, racist propaganda. So he does this Google search, and then he says he discovers all of these vicious attacks on white Americans by Black people that are being hidden from him and being hidden from Americans. And from here, he goes further and he goes down a racist rabbit hole. And he says, you know, I learned about the Jewish problem. I learned about all these murders of white people. And I learned that we're taught that we live in a melting pot, but in fact, white people's lives are at stake, okay? And he says, you know, I can say today that I am completely racially aware. This is so he goes on this journey. Now, what's interesting is, if you do a search on black on white crime, and of course I've written about this, the Southern Poverty Law Center has written about this, lots of journalists now have covered this story. And one of the things that he didn't see was FBI statistics that show that violent crime is an intra-racial phenomenon. So this is really an important story because, to me, the consequences of doing searches on things that are already known to be patently false or propagandistic don't get intervened upon. They don't get framed. He didn't get FBI statistics. You know, he didn't get any, let's say, writings by black studies professors. You know, nothing. Or the Southern Poverty Law Center, who does a lot of this work. That's right. They weren't visible at the time. Now, what happens is when these stories break, what Google does is they take a book like mine or Siva's or anybody else. It's just like a big book of tickets. This is what you call when you work in an IT environment and you have a problem to fix, you open a ticket. This is the way we characterize that. So my book is like a big book of tickets as are other people's books. And Google just goes through and tries to fix them as quickly as possible. Sometimes they offer an apology. Sometimes they don't. Most of not And times it's a like don't. nothing to see here situation. Nothing like, to see here. All fixed. It's a glitch, but see, when you start documenting in a systematic way, which is what I was trying to do for the book, you see that there's too many things for this to be called a glitch. It's actually a logic that's at play. And the logic is that those who are the most vulnerable, the most likely to be harmed are also likely to be minoritized, except in the case of women who aren't in the minority. I imagine that if you are younger and grew up with Google and grew
0: up with getting information through digital forms, that it's very hard to discern what is a paid ad, what has been boosted, what is a genuine search result. And that that has huge consequences for things like elections.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a professor at UCLA, and I can tell you that my students, the whole 10 years that I've been teaching, have said I could never write a paper for class without Google. So I try to say to them, I said, listen, if you think that Google is so reliable, why go to UCLA? Why get a degree? Why not just Google for the rest of your life? Just Google your way through life. And they're like horrified. Professor Noble, what are you doing? And I'm like, see how that doesn't make sense? Because there are some things like knowledge that are actually still contested. I think part of the Google search reflex is that you're
0: put into uh, give me the answers rather than like, what are the questions and how do I contextualize? Is this what you mean by algorithmic literacy, that we learn how to contextualize and we learn how to question and not just be in this passive mode? which It's such
1: an easy place to be. The search flattens for us our understanding of the world. And it also delivers to us in a very structured, hierarchical way. So search rank order also means if it's on the first page or at the top, it's more reliable, we can trust it more. And that I think is also very, very dangerous because again, so many things that are happening in search need context, need more information, need to be more fully understood, And also many things that show up on the first page or first are false. And this is just a fact. So, or are driven by a profit motive. They might be clickbait. They might be things to get you to click on it because it's going to be more profitable than, let's say, the truth or the fact. So this is what we have at stake. And I will just say, to me, this is so much more important than social media. And I have many colleagues who study social media and I watch social media and I write about it. But, I think that social media is a place where people understand much more about the subjectivity. They know they're in a network of their friends and associates. It's very different when they're interfacing with a blank screen that all of a sudden populates, like you say, in a way that feels magical and feels reliable and trustworthy. And I think that means that there are different stakes at play with these kinds of products.
0: Just to clarify, though, when we're talking about algorithmic discrimination, we're not just talking about Google. There was a case, the ACLU dealt with in Detroit, where a man was arrested in front of his small children because there was a facial recognition mismatch. And he's a black man and it was a black face and the computer could not tell the distinction between these faces. And the police arrested this man and he was held in question and his children were terrified. His wife was terrified. And they were like,
1: it was the facial recognition. It was not our fault. That's a terrible story. And i especially heartbroken because that man had had a perfect attendance at work. This is like a guy with an incredible work ethic who's just an amazing human being who was entrapped by a faulty facial recognition system that with your own eyes you could see the, the pictures officers. were nothing they, alike nothing his name is alike. robert
0: williams by the
1: way yeah yes. nothing alike even in
0: the really bad surveillance camera footage you're just like as a human did you not look at this before you arrested Robert Williams, like this doesn't make any sense, like no sense, and and this brings up what you were talking about questioning and not just relying like, oh, it was the algorithm. It's not us like use you know, and this comes up with Google Maps in tragic ways sometimes when people follow the path without questioning like, oh, I'm in a
1: snowdrift, but Google Maps is telling me to be in a snowdrift, so I guess it's the right way. well, this is very serious because what has happened is people have come to be acculturated into believing that the algorithm knows better than we do, right? Now, this is really, again, what I'm talking about when we talk about what's at stake, the loss of human agency, that the police officers can't use their own eyeballs and trust them because it's so hard to believe that the algorithm or the software could be wrong. Now, that's extremely dangerous. It's very dangerous for us to believe that these systems are infallible and somehow our own eyes, our own senses are betraying us. And of course they do sometimes, not to say that they don't. So that is, of course, really important. The lack of ability to question these systems in our lives is also, I think, kind of what you're getting at here, which is software and, you know, predictive analytics, these kinds of systems, recommending systems, surveillance systems, they capture us all kind of in them. And then decisions are made. Whether it's matching our faces or mismatching our faces, whether it's how well we paid attention and whether the proctoring software that's on your laptop that's monitoring your kids right now in this era of Zoom school is accurately deciphering their intelligence, right, or not, we are captured into systems every day. You said it. We're just acculturated to pick up that phone or on the laptop or the iPads or the devices all the time and then... We are building these data profiles about ourselves that we don't know, that we can't intervene upon. Thousands of companies buying, selling, trading data about us. We've completely lost our ability to understand who we are in these systems. People think they're just going to shop for insurance. They don't know that they're being shopped for predatory rates. So, this kind of systemic discrimination we already have redlining, all kinds of different horrible public policies now get inscribed into these technologies, and they are more opaque. We're talking about a remaking of the worst dimensions of society and remaking them in ways that are very, very difficult to undo, to apprehend, to legislate around, and sometimes even to talk about.
0: Dr. Noble? Just so we don't end on a really depressing note, are there solutions? (laughs) You can't invite me if you don't want to be depressed. I know, I know, this is so terrible. Okay, but Google has done things where they're like, let's train, if the problem is in algorithms and in the code, well, let's train more black women to be in coding. We'll give money to fund a school. It's a pipeline issue. So Google has tried, and I think you know what you said is that that's not the solution. So what is the solution? And can Google be responsible for it, or does it have to be an outside government actor who's imposing regulation?
1: Well, I kind of was a little cheeky in the book when I said that Google, in response to these criticisms, gave a huge donation to Black Girls Code and moved them into their New York offices. And Black Girls Code is a worthy and deserving organization. So there's no question. I find it disingenuous to say, the reason that we malign black women in our products is because little black girls haven't learned how to code. I'm not buying that. Okay. You're not going to push it back on our community and say it's our fault that we don't know how to code. When in fact, people like Jessica Gwynn at the, at USA Today, the tech editor has done amazing stories about this incredibly diverse pipeline of black and Latino and indigenous and women computer scientists who are prepared to go into the workforce in Silicon Valley, but just don't get hired because they went to San Jose State instead of Stanford, right? So we can really spend time talking about the alleged lack of a pipeline, which is just patently false. I think that some of the, of course, we need a more diverse workforce. There's no question. We also need that diverse workforce to not just be people trained in the same ways of knowing as computer science departments have been organized for the last 50 years, We need people who have degrees, joint degrees. You need a bachelor's in computer science and a bachelor's in African-American studies or Chicano-Latino studies or LGBTQ gender studies or sociology. Anything that's going to teach you something about society and especially vulnerable people in that society is going to be an asset. So we have to figure out how we're going to stop the total automation of so many dimensions of the human experience through software, through platforms, through predictive analytics, through surveillance systems, those things have to actually get managed by lawmakers and regulatory agencies. And most of the pressure for that, just like civil rights movements around the world, come from people whose civil rights and human rights and sovereign rights are violated. So I think we're gonna have to really apprehend the depth of the harms. All these kinds of encroachments upon living and living a good quality of life are really at stake right now. And I think we've got to just do as much research as fast as we can. We've got to have the lawsuits. We've got to create the public policies and the awareness. And I will say that the thing that makes me so hopeful is that 10 years ago, people told me Technology couldn't discriminate. And now we have this amazing podcast, this conversation. People can apprehend these conversations and they're pissed and they want to do something about it. And that's fantastic. The one good thing I will say is that, you know, we've had other major crises, human crises. I think about the transatlantic slave trade. You know, it's Black History Month. I think about things like the transatlantic slave trade, the institution of enslavement and slavery in this country. It was really a handful of abolitionists relative to the millions of people who abolished those systems. So I think to myself, we, you know, ev- millions of people don't have to understand, but a lot of key people need to understand and need to work together. And we need to erect policies and we need to undo some of these processes and practices. And we can arrest these harms. I really believe we can.
0: Well, Dr. Noble, you've given us so much to think about. And thank you,
1: not just for what you said today, but for also asking these questions so early. Yeah, well, you know, I always try to tell people, listen to black women, listen to women and people who some people can see things just by virtue of their station in life, you know, and I think that I'm really grateful to have the privilege of getting to do the kind of work that I do and getting to share it with you and, you know, your listeners and just thanks for making a space for the voices. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.